Welcome again to St. John to our series, Divided We Fall. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online yet again. It's an honor to have you. Uh, when I first began my tenure here as a, as a pastor, it was nine years ago, I came as an associate pastor. Um, this guy was in his heyday. Anyone know who this is? Okay, I was going to say, somebody's got to know, Glenn Beck. Now, I hadn't heard much of him. We don't have cable. I know it's archaic, uh, but we didn't have cable before not having cable was cool. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't know a lot about him before, uh, before I started here, uh, but right about the time I came here, he was really in his heyday. And what I, what I, when I became really acquainted with Glenn Beck, uh, that's who this guy is, um, it was over a crusade that he started against these two words, the words social justice. Anyone remember this back in like 2010? It was a big deal for a little while. Uh, if you don't remember it, I sure do for uh, reasons you'll see in just a minute. Uh, what Glenn Beck said at the time, and these statements were pretty controversial at the time, he encouraged Christians, he encouraged people to go and check their church websites and to listen closely to their pastors and their leaders speak. And here's what he said. If you ever hear, or if you ever see on the website, or if you ever hear your pastor say the word, use the words, social justice, run in the other direction. That's what he said. Now, again, I, I didn't know a lot about this guy, um, but, uh, but I'll tell you what was weird. In the weeks that followed, I got over a dozen emails from people in this congregation. And I, I was just the associate pastor who had been here about a year. I don't, I don't know how many emails Steve Howard must have gotten or Ryan Peterson must have gotten, uh, but I got at least a dozen emails in the weeks that followed that asked this seemingly innocent question. Pastor Dion, where does our church stand on social justice? Now, I was aware along the way that um, something was going on. I found out about these comments. And so I knew that this wasn't an innocent question, at least not by everyone, that people were just kind of randomly, spontaneously all thinking about it at the same time in some really coincidental kind of way. I know for some people, maybe they were seeking genuine clarity. But for some people, it was nothing less than bait to see how I'd answer, presumably so they would know whether or not to stick around or to run. And that's probably the moment when I began to become less and less comfortable with stances. Now, that was a big change for me because I was raised uh, by a father who taught me to stand up for what I believe in, taught me to, you know, to be firm, to be brave, to not let anyone push me around and, you know, just, just to dig in and, and to do what's right, not only do what's right, but stand for what is right. And I'm really grateful for the way that I was raised in all of that. So, so this idea that, that maybe stances, taking stances isn't a good idea, that was, that was hard for me. And, and, and I know that for you, even as I say that, that may sound like I'm advocating then on the opposite side, coward or a lack of conviction or uh, watering down the truth or some sort of relativism. And, and I get that. And I'm not a fan of any of those things. In fact, I could tell you a bunch, of, a bunch of the really dumb things that I have done in my life just to prove kind of like Marty McFly on Back to the Future, just to prove that I'm not a chicken. I've done a lot of dumb stuff and maybe you have too because cowardice, uh, you know, not having conviction, watering things down, or, or relativism. That, that's not me by nature. And, and meanwhile, we're living in this world where it's so tempting, and we're being baited all the time by all kinds of people to take a stance, to articulate our position, to let people know where we stand on any number of issues. And so the pressure is intense for us to make a stand, take a stance. I mean, I mean just think about some of the issues we're groping with today. Like, are you, are you pro-life? Or do you support a woman's right to choose? 
Or what about LGBT rights? Where do you stand on that issue? Or what about the Me Too movement? Anyone else sweating a lot last week while Pastor Doug was up here? Anyone mention Me Too? Man, I was like, I was sitting out there sweating and I knew what he was going to say. And, and I'm so proud of him for wading into these issues because for the most time, most part, we don't talk about this stuff in the church until it's like 50 years past its thing. You know, we talk about it historically. And, and so, you know, I'm so proud of his courage, but, but there's so much tension around issues like this or, or what's your stance on the border wall and DACA and refugees and all kinds of other immigration issues or what about equal pay how do you how do you feel about that where do you stand on equal pay or or what you know do blue lives matter to you or do black lives matter to you just just curious does anyone have both of those signs in their yard anyone I'd be interested to talk to you if you do. That'd be, uh, that'd be interesting to me. Um, or, uh, you know, where do you stand on the Second Amendment? That's a big question, and there's rallies on either side of that all right now. Or, uh, you know, we just had 420 Day on Friday. So, you know, where's your stance on the legalization of marijuana? It's a big issue in a lot of places. And, and this is just a fraction of the stuff that's swirling around in our culture, the issues that are begging to be debated and talked about that are begging for us to take a stance. And here's what I know, that right now, if, if I was, as I was going through that list, if I asked you literally to stand to show your support for any of these things, and if you were actually willing to do it, which I know you wouldn't, but if you were willing to do it, just play along, if I asked you to stand and you stood for the things that you support, you, you literally stood up to show your support for it, here's what I guarantee would happen you would realize that there are a lot of people who are clearly wrong about some important stuff in this church, <laughs> wouldn't you? Um, and, and then here's what I think might happen after that. At the first convenient opportunity you could find, you would find a reason to change where you sit, which may be the only thing that could get some of you to change where you sit. <laughs> some of you have been in the same spot for 20 years and we, we all know how that goes. You see, what often happens when we, when we take stances, the reason they can be so dangerous, the reason I think they're meant to be resisted as much as possible is because I think, here's, here's what happens when someone articulates a stance, at least for me, let me explain it this way, that when someone takes a stance, and, and these are the weeks in our series that we've been talking about so far, when someone takes a stance, you know what I do? The moment someone articulates a position, I go and I get out my script and I start flipping through it and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh that doesn't surprise me, totally see that. Yeah, that makes sense about her. Uh-huh. Okay, I, I see where this is going. Right, the moment someone articulates a stance, I pull out the script and I start reading ahead of what does this mean? What does this person think? What does this believe? Where is all of this headed, right? If your pastor says social justice, get out of here because we know where this is going. There's a script that he or she is following and, 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 and so that's what we kind of do. And then on the basis of the script that we read, we decide whether or not we want to move toward those people or move away from those people. And ultimately we end up hunkered down in these you know, tribes, these bunkers of like-minded, ideologically aligned people and, and we're in our different groups and we find ourselves not being bridge builders, but we find ourselves deeply divided and divided, we fall. See, stances lead so often, maybe not 100% of the time, but so often to the rest of this. Which is why I think stances... I mean, and I'm not taking a stance on this, <laughs> but, but I wonder if stances should be resisted much more than uh, we currently think. See, I, I'm becoming more convinced that stances, when, when we take them firmly on a position, on an issue, 
All they do, all they ever can do is divide us. They don't convince anyone of anything else because stances are inflexible, they're absolute. Stances, instead of inviting conversation, they shut it down. They pit one person and their views against the other. They encourage yelling. They encourage blaming and and shaming. Stances turn into battlegrounds with winners and losers. And that's the stuff of division. That's why I believe our country is so divided and our churches are often so divided. And even in our families, we experience so much division. Now, Now, here's what I understand. I understand that right now some of you are really getting uncomfortable with what I'm saying. And again, I, I don't blame you. A few years ago, I think I would have been uncomfortable with this too. And, and, and here's, here's what I think you might be uncomfortable with. Perhaps you're sitting here thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying resist stances. That's maybe not a good idea to, to take a stand. But, but aren't we supposed to stand for things that are right? Especially as Christians, if you, if you don't stand for anything, you'll fall for everything. And, and shouldn't we take a stand for things in life? And there are plenty of Christian leaders who would say yes, and, and they, would, they would motivate you to take a stand and to get out there and, and be bold and you know, dig in and tell the world what your position is. And, and, and there are a lot of people who do that for good reason. But I'm going to encourage you to think about this differently. See, I, I even grew up seeing this old hymn, I don't know if you know it, this old hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Anyone know that one? Man, that was an exciting hymn when I was growing up because um, it was during the singing of that hymn, people would start singing it and then people in the congregation would just like on their own stand up, which never happened in my church without the instruction of a pastor telling you to stand up or sit down first. It was kind of this unscripted moment that was, I was looking around as a kid, they're like, whoa, they're standing up and, and you know, you sing those songs, stand up for Jesus, take a stand and it seems so right. But here, here's what I've discovered that as if you really watch Jesus, if you read the gospels, If you look at how Jesus deals with the issues of his day, and and there are plenty of issues that he was dealing with back in his day, we see time and time again that Jesus consistently resists the temptation to firmly make a stance, especially where people are concerned. And today we're going to look at um, a a series of these examples, because I believe this is not just a peculiarity of Jesus' ministry. I think this is a pattern that we are meant to follow as his followers. We are supposed to mirror our actions off his, not off of what other people in the world are doing. And so in Matthew chapter 22, we're going to look at it. Um, This is a chapter where there is uh, a series of people of different parties and groups with different ideologies, deeply divided people who come to Jesus and in a series of events, they try to trick him, they try to trap him, they try to force him into taking a position on the most hot button issues of their day. And we're going to see that Jesus doesn't respond the way that maybe we were taught to respond. He doesn't respond in the way that it's natural for me to respond. He responds in a very, very different way. And again, I think it's not just a peculiarity of Jesus's. I think he's giving us a pattern to follow. Now, we're not going to look at all of these examples today. You can read Matthew 22, the rest of it, when you go home. We're going to look at the first of these examples. Matthew 22, verse 15, page 990, if you're here in the room. It says, then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. So the intention at the very beginning is clear. This is not an honest conversation. This is, this is meant to be a trap. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, if you've been in the church a little bit, you maybe have heard about the Pharisees before. That at least sound familiar to you? If you don't know them, that's okay. That's all right. I'm about to tell you about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, were the fundamentalists of their day. They were religiously and culturally fundamentalists. They were protectionists. 
And they saw anything that threatened their culture, whether that was their dietary laws or the way they dressed or you know, just how they, how they lived, the things that they celebrated, their, their culture or their religion or even their nation, anything that was an influence, they saw those things as a threat. And so they were very insular. They were very uh, you know, preservationist. And so they hated Jesus <laughs> because Jesus didn't do the right things culturally and he was poking at their cultural traditions and, and he even said things that for them religiously were out of line and, and so they struggled with him. And so the Pharisees, they hated Jesus because he challenged the status quo. Now what's interesting is that you have the Pharisees here and then you have another group, they partner up with the Herodians. How many of you know anything about the Herodians? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're way less known, much more obscure Uh, And what we understand, what we think we understand about the Herodians is that these people were complete opposites of the Pharisees. Pharisees, you know, didn't like outside influence, didn't like Rome, didn't like other people, you know, Greeks or other people uh, messing with their culture. The Herodians, they were like wide open to Roman influence. And they supported the Roman Empire and everything that it was doing. They were kind of like the royalists back in 1775 when, you know, other people are like, mad at Britain here in this country and and they're dumping tea in the harbor and the royalists are like, what's the big deal? The British are nice. And I mean, that's the Herodians. Uh, So they loved Rome, but they also hated Jesus because Jesus maybe was uh, going around claiming to be the Messiah. Maybe that was true. And so he was a threat to the political stability of the day. So you have two people who couldn't, two groups of people rather, who couldn't be more different, deeply divided, don't talk to each other, don't like each other. And yet they are teaming up. Why? Because nothing unites people like a common enemy. And they go together in on this plan to try to trap Jesus. And here's what they say. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. <laughs> you, guys, you guys get this? And they're laying it on thick. I mean, there's some sarcasm and some irony here, but at the same time, they're trying to, they're trying to disarm Jesus. So teacher, we know you're, you, don't, you don't care about people's opinions and you always do what's right and you're so wise and you're so smart. So tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, uh, they ask this very loaded question. The question is, is it right, is it moral to pay taxes? Now, I swear we didn't do this to you on purpose because some of you this week were asking the same question, right? Um, Here's your filing taxes in our country going, is this right, is this moral, should I be doing this? And I know if I yielded the microphone, we we could spend the rest of the morning just talking about this very issue, couldn't we? I mean, a hot button issue, but even more back in this day, it was a big issue because this imperial tax was a specific tax. Uh, It was a tax that was put upon non-citizens of Rome that they had to pay. So they didn't have rights. They didn't have legal protections from Rome. Rome was an occupier, unwanted. um, So they're kind of living under occupation. And then they have to pay this imperial tax back to Rome to these people they don't even want in their country who aren't taking care of them, who give them no rights. This is like the epitome of taxation without representation. So the imperial tax wasn't just any tax. It was an especially hated tax by most Jewish people. And so they asked Jesus this question, good teacher, you're so smart. You don't care about what people think. You're so wise. Just tell us what you think. We're just curious, just out of the blue. We're just wondering about this stuff. 
Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And herein lies the trap. You got these two groups I told you about them, the Pharisees and the Herodians. If Jesus says, yeah, go ahead, pay the tax. The disciples of the Pharisees, and and, and I know this is interesting that the disciples of the Pharisees are there, not the Pharisees themselves. I think the Pharisees don't even want to be seen with the Herodians. That's how much these guys hate each other. Or they're they're undercover or something. But but if Jesus says, go ahead, pay the tax, the disciples of the Pharisees are going to run back and tell their leaders, Jesus just expressed support of Rome and their pagan emperor. And immediately Jesus will lose credibility with most Jewish people because they hated Rome. They hated this tax. He would be seen as siding with Rome. But on the other side, if Jesus says, hey, no, 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 don't pay the tax. This is an unjust tax. Then the Herodians are going to run back and tell their people and they're going to say, Jesus does not support the tax of, of the Caesar and he'll be tried and executed right on the spot for treason. You see, it is a lose, lose situation. A very cleverly designed trap. But it turns out as smart as this trap is, Jesus is smarter. (laughs) But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? So so, all of this flattery and just we have this innocent question. We're just kind of wondering. We're curious. We've been thinking. And he's like, that's not your intention. This is a trap. You're you're, you're lying. This is a deception. Why are you trying to trap me? And And then he says this, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Does anyone else find Jesus' answer amazing? Yeah, frankly, initially, on the first uh, look, I find it a little underwhelming. <laughs> um, I, I know the guys all leave him alone, and here was this grand trap, and there was no answer, and then they go away, and, and that's amazing. They just kind of leave him alone because his answer is so clever. But, but the actual nature of his answer, why it was so profound, is a little confusing to me. What is it that sent these guys away? What is it that's so amazing about his answer? Well, first... Uh, the first thing Jesus does is he finds a way to walk this balance, not to take a position, but to walk this balance by showing respect to Caesar, but also not alienating the Jewish people who had a legitimate beef against Caesar. Here's what he does. He says, show me the coin. And uh, here's what the coin looked like. Uh, the coin had in it a picture of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor at the time. Um, and it had an inscription, and on the back the inscription continues. And here's what, you know, so it's got his image, he says, and here's what the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. See, it wasn't just that this was a tax. The very nature of this coin was objectionable to Jewish people. Tiberius Caesar, the, the emperor, is the son of the divine Augustus. You've heard of Augustus, the Caesar Augustus. Um, he was viewed as divine. And so here's what Tiberius said on the coins that he issued for taxation. I'm Tiberius the emperor. I am the son of God. We're beginning to see why this was especially objectionable to Jewish people. But, but what does Jesus do? Jesus looks at the coin and he says, he says okay, okay, um, whose who's image and inscription is this? Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God 
what is God's. You see what he does? He says, he says Caesar's your king. You, you can give him the coin, but give to God what is God's. He's drawing a line there saying, Caesar's your king, but he's not your God. And so he finds a way to respect Caesar and his kingship while also making a theological statement that, hey, Caesar isn't God. There is no God but the true God, and Caesar is no son of God. Now, of course, the irony is here standing with the coin in his hand showing them is the son of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the second thing that Jesus does that I think is so clever, and I, I, I doubt that many people got it, maybe only those who are especially open to, uh, to truth, is, um, is in his answer, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's. It's like he's prompting a question. And the question is, what is God's here? The coin in his hand with Caesar's image and inscription, that's Caesar's coin, give it back to Caesar. But he just kind of leaves it open-ended. Give to God what is God's. Here's Caesar's coin, give the coin to Caesar, give to God what is God's. Well, what is God's here? Where is God's image and inscription found? And you see, I, I think Jesus is giving us a clue here about his destiny or a clue to those first followers about his destiny because here is Jesus, the one who bears the image of God, the one who is truly the son of God, not the Caesar, the one on whom the name of God is written, who fully manifests the person of God. He is the one who bears the image and the inscription of God. And, and here he's saying what's, what's going to happen, that, that he's going to be given back to God. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. Paul says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Where his inscription and image is found, give that back to him. But where the image and the inscription of God is found, that's going to be given back to him. Jesus is talking about his destiny here. That he, the one who bears the image of God, is going to be offered back to God as a fragrant offering, as, as a peace offering. To buy our reconciliation to bring us back into relationship with God. But it doesn't stop there. See, now because of Jesus, where also is the image and the inscription of God found? On us. Now we have the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Because we, in creation, were given his image. Sin marred that image. But in Christ, we're, we're restored to uh, sonship, to, to daughtership, if that's a word. Um, we're, we're, we're given back to God. And he again writes his name on us. He claims us. And so Jesus is also saying something profound about us. Look at how Paul puts this then. Same kind of thing that he just said about Jesus. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, an offering, a tribute back to God, holy and pleasing. This is your true and proper worship. See, Jesus is saying something so profound here. You know, give the coin to Caesar. That's, that's Caesar's. What God wants, he doesn't care about the taxes. You can do whatever you want with that. What God wants is you. Because you bear his name, you bear his inscription, you bear his image. See, Jesus answers in this, in this profound, deep way, speaks deep theological truths about his destiny and ultimately our destiny. But notice what he doesn't do. 
in this very polarized debate where they're setting a trap for him, he doesn't take a stance. And Jesus does this again and again throughout his ministry. When, when a woman is dragged before him, and some of you know the story, John chapter 8, when a woman's dragged before him who's caught in the act of adultery, and, and the Pharisees and the leaders, they throw her down in front of Jesus. And here's this, this woman who is completely powerless in that culture, um, standing next to these men who are, have all the power in the culture. And here's a woman who's, whose sin is so public, she was just caught in the act of adultery. And here are these, these self-righteous men who seem to be sinless, but their sin is every bit as real, but it's hidden. And, and they demand that Jesus take a stand. Jesus, the law of Moses says that people like this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? Take a stand now, Jesus. It's time to take a stand. Do you agree with Moses or do you have some other idea? Are you for this woman, this sinful woman? Are you going to stand with us? You've got to pick sides here, Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus does if you know this story? He takes a stand. No? Remember what he says? If you know the story, if not, I'll tell you. He says, let he who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And just like in this encounter, everyone there drops the rocks in their hands that they're about to use to put this woman to death and they leave her alone. See, what is Jesus saying in that answer? These guys see all the differences they see this great divide, sinner and saints and, and sinful woman and righteous men and, 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 and they see it so clearly. And what does Jesus do? Jesus suddenly puts them all on the same side of the great divide and says, you want to condemn her? Let me tell you that you guys are all on the same side of this. You're all sinful. And so the one who thinks they're not sinful, go ahead, you know, be bold enough. He, he, he cleverly avoids taking a stance and instead... He heals or bridges that divide in a powerful way. See, see, here's why I think throughout the Gospels, and if you read the Gospels, you're going to see this. So if you don't like what I'm saying, read the Gospels and read them over and over again and pay attention to how Jesus deals with these very tough situations that are charged, that are controversial, where people are begging him on both sides to take a position. I want you to watch what he does and follow his pattern. And the reason he does it, the reason he does it, I think is this, is that stances are about what's right and wrong and Jesus is always about what's true. See, stances, they're about right and wrong. Jesus, he is completely about what's true. And I know this sounds like hair splitting to some of you. You're like, that's the same thing. I assure you it's not the same thing. Certainly there are things in the world that are right and wrong. I won't argue that. But when that becomes your focus, when that becomes your, your, atti- your attitude and your approach, they will always be destructive and divisive when it's about right and wrong. See, right and wrong is about winners and losers. That's what politics in this country have become. It's no longer about what's good or what's true. It's about winning and losing, and we must win at all costs, and, and, and that's what it's about. See, right and wrong leads to winners and losers. And by the way, do you know who's about, who's, about, who's about standing for what's right and wrong in this story that we looked at today? The Pharisees and the Herodians, they're obsessed with it. And in case you didn't pick this up, they are not the heroes of the story. Do you know who's obsessed with taking stances and articulating positions and demanding that people do the same? Again, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they are not the people to be emulated in this story. 
They're the bad guys in the story. See, instead, Jesus, he resists this thing about right and wrong, winners and losers. Instead, Jesus shows that he loves what's true and he gives himself to helping people embrace what's true. And helping people embrace what's true is so different than just standing for right or wrong. And this is what Jesus is about, is helping people embrace to grab a hold of what's true because what's true is good because what's true, what's true is, is we're going to talk about it. See, the difference between this is that truth doesn't pick sides. Right and wrong is all about sides. Truth doesn't pick sides. It's not about winners and losers. Truth is unbiased. In fact, truth wants everyone, everyone to win. Second, truth is complicated. I'm not saying that truth is relative. I'm just saying truth is complicated. And the longer we live, the more we see that. That the truth is complicated. Sometimes it's hard to understand. It's complicated to apply. It's hard to live. Uh, I've told some of you before that um, when I was a little bit younger, I was really passionate about pro-life issues. And I still am, actually. I, I have deep convictions about the holiness and the value of human life. But the way I I manifested those convictions when I was younger was um, I would go to abortion clinics and I'd protest and I would be a part of these vigils and and, uh, and I felt really good about that. I'm I'm taking a stand on something that I really believe is important deeply. I'm I'm letting my conviction drive me to action Um, and and I felt felt good about that. But I'll tell you when things started to become a little more complicated for me. It's when my nephew Cullen was born. Now, I've maybe talked about Cullen here before, I'm sure I have, but um, Cullen is now 20 years old, and from the time he was in the womb and then after birth, we knew that there was going to be some severe problems with him. He had a stroke in utero, lost most of his brain, still doesn't have most of the portions of his brain that he should, um, so he's had a developmental disability, s- several that he's dealt with, chronic seizures, uh, cerebral palsy, physical issues, uh, and they just get worse and worse and worse as he gets older. And uh, let, me, let me just be clear that Cullen's life has been a gift, an incredible gift to our family and to the world. He has impacted a whole community of people just by the way he lives. And he challenges the assumption about what makes life valuable or what makes us worth it or how we, find our, you know, how, how we define ourselves. Because Cullen can't do any of the things that, that most normal people do to find worth. And yet he's beautiful and he's valuable and he's loved. And, and that's an important challenge. That's an important lesson for all of us. But, but here's where it's complicated. That I've watched over the last 20 years as my whole family has shifted around Cullen's disabilities. Um, how they have given up a whole lot um, in order to, to care give for him. And, and I've watched as, as that's taken a toll on people's livelihood, on my, on my sister in her relationships, even her marriage. And, and I've watched as she's had to fight with insurance companies and government about getting him the services and the care that he needs because sometimes we say we stand for life and, and we're all about it until life costs money and, and then we don't want to put our money where our mouth is and, and so you know, th- then things get kind of weird and, and I've watched the battles that she's fighting and I realized that making that decision for life, it's beautiful, I think it's good and Cullen's life is a testimony to that but, but I realized the complexity of this issue can't be summed up on a placard. Um, And so I still have deep convictions about life. But the way I express those convictions 
has changed. And we see this in the Bible that, that in the New Testament especially, you don't often see the word truth mentioned without the word grace right there with it. And it's like it's God's way of reminding us that yes, there's truth and we should love truth and, and, and we should uphold truth and we should help other people come to the knowledge of the truth, not force truth down their throat, but help them come to the knowledge of the truth. But, but, but truth is complicated and it's hard sometimes and, and so grace is always, always required. Uh, see, third, truth is inherently humble. Far from being proud and loud and arrogant and boastful, it's humble. And you see that in Jesus, the one who's truth incarnate. He's so humble. He, he doesn't deal with these tense issues the way that you see the people on cable news dealing with these issues, does he? Because truth is always humble. It's, it's so convinced about what's good and pure that it doesn't need to be angry. It doesn't need to be arrogant. And, and whenever you see it being arrogant, it's, it's, it might not be truth. It, it can't be from God. Um, finally, truth is about giving life. See, when we think about right and wrong, we think you should do what's right because it's right. And that's the right thing to do. And never asking the question of why is it right or why does it matter? See, see God gives us a, a deeper answer when he talks about truth. And he says, what, truth is about giving life. Jesus came as a manifestation of of truth, not just to set the record straight on all the moral issues. He came into the world to give us life. That's what truth always does. And you see, if we can be a people who love truth more than we love showing off that we're smart, more than we love being right, more than we love winning, if we can love truth so much that we want to help other people embrace truth and we ourselves have this humility about, about, you know, Jesus was 100% right all the time. He had that benefit. I may not be, and so in my own life, I'm going to humbly pursue truth. If we can can be that way in our lives, here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. Even when we find ourselves on opposite sides of a divide on some big issue, if, if together, even especially we in the church, if we can love truth and humbly pursue truth, then even when we're on opposite sides of a divide, you know what we're doing? We're still moving in the same direction. We may be miles apart on how we see the world, but if we love and we're pursuing truth, then we are, we are moving in the same direction and we are not as divided as it might seem. I want to be clear. Conviction is a good thing. Don't live life if you don't have any conviction. And belief is so important. Belief is one of the central articles of our faith. But stances, I don't think they're so helpful. But but here's what I know. Jesus can teach us how to love what's true and to love it so, so deeply that we can humbly, kindly, um, cleverly, instead of alienating, alienating people by, by drawing up sides, we, we, can, we can move together toward what is true. And when we do that, then we'll see some of the divisions that we experience that polarize us, that turn us into bitter enemies. We will see them falling away as we together pursue truth. Now, I've said this already today. I have taken numerous stances in my life. And uh, I'm not sure I know how to do this well, frankly. 
I know what Jesus did well. I, I, I don't fully understand his pattern or his, his model as well as I should. Um, but I do know this, that getting this right starts with admitting where we've gone wrong. So if you're a person today who feels like, maybe I've not always gotten this right. You're, you're in good company. Uh, but I invite you to bow your head with me, if that's you. And let's go before God and ask his help. Father in heaven, thanks for showing us another way to live out our conviction, to uh, love truth, to pursue truth. Thanks for showing us through your son, Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you yourself are one who isn't about winners and losers, because if you were, we would lose. And if you were just coldly about what's right and wrong, then we would always be on the, the, the bad side of that divide. But Father in heaven, you show us a deeper reality that, that uh, even though in so many ways we are so separate and divided and different from you, you show us that you love us, that you want to embrace us, that you want to help us come to the knowledge of the truth. So, Father, I thank you for the pattern of Jesus. I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit who's constantly teaching me how to try to be more like Jesus. And, Father, right now, I just admit all the ways that I've gotten this wrong. And sometimes it's been, it's been from, from a place that I thought was good. I thought I was doing the right thing. It's, it's been from a place of conviction, deep soul conviction. And yet, Father, I acknowledge that sometimes I've been a part of the problem. And together, Father, we acknowledge as your church that sometimes we have been a part of the problem. We have deepened divides, thinking that's the way it has to be, rather than resisting stances and instead loving truth and pursuing truth and helping other people do the same. And Father, we just confess that before you, that we don't know what we're doing all the time. And we also ask for your leadership, your guidance to help us, to help us find a better way to find in ourselves, in our living, and living out our conviction and in our belief to find the way of Jesus. Help us, we pray in his mighty name. Amen.